You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. Uh, Deepening your practice, it is February 3rd. 2022 at 7:35 p.m. Pacific uh, Standard Time, and uh, we've been talking loosely about the progress of insight. And tonight, we're on the insight knowledge by comprehension of the third stage. I kind of talk about it like um, the three marks of existence: not self, impermanence, and uh, suffering. Uh, suffering is the translation for dukkha. Um, Shinzen, um, one of my main teachers, always talked about it as unsatisfactoriness, the, the nature of the human condition as being unsatisfactory. And Dan, uh, my, one of my teachers, talks about it as reactivity. Uh, I kind of like the reactivity labeling because even if you purify everything, you still have senses that are reactive to uh, contacting objects that can be sensed and you still have the mind that creates the world out of them. Um, but usually we start talking about it in terms of not self or no self, uh, true self sometimes, um, or the self, not self experience. Christian? Is the dukkha like have to have a negative connotation because the way you just described it i could see it being a very neutral term but i always it seems like it's always presented with a negative connotation well i think that we have a, a pejorative association to suffering uh, and so that that when we label it suffering that's what happens or when we label it uh, unsatisfactoriness uh, when you talk about that usually there's the three levels of of uh, unsatisfactoriness the first is uh, that you're in a body that's going to grow old get sick and die and there's not much you can do about that uh, everyone you know everything you have you're going to lose um, the second level of course is that you get what you want sometimes but you still lose it or sometimes you don't get what you want and sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want and then the third level is this subtle ongoing pervasive irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of everything which is sort of a you know it's a cut and then being plunged in a salt bath <laughs> uh, it's not how you want it you're not in charge <laughs> But does the does the how does the reactivity framing fit into those three levels? Because it seems like it's it's a little bit distinct from other from the unsatisfactory. Well, let's just say that you come to terms with the the physical body dying, so it's no longer a source of suffering. Let's say you come to terms with the fact that even if you get something, everything is impermanent, so it's not going to last. And sometimes you can't get what you want, and sometimes you have to put up with things you want, and you're at peace with that. So there's no suffering there anymore. And that subtle, ongoing irritation becomes comical and light rather than uh, an irritation. 
you're still going to react to everything so that 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 final settling isn't uh, relieved by actually coming into those kinds of understandings, which is why the reactivity one is nice. The um, <clears throat> Dan gave me the Pith Instructions, which is a book he just recently translated. And uh, one of the exercises, one of the preliminary exercises is to, to uh, go to an isolated place and contemplate all of the ways that you could die until you're trembling with fear that you're going to die. Um, so I thought, all right. And I went up to a Big Bear uh, retreat center and they, they have a 2200 year old pine tree or uh, conifer of some kind. So I just plopped myself down at the base of the tree in the morning and I sat there contemplating all the many ways in which I could die in, in every gory detail I could come up with until the by the time uh, dinner time rolled around, I was actually frightened by the thoughts of that because most of the time I don't, I'm, I'm unwilling to consider it maybe. But it, there was a kind of freeing quality to it. And what it, what it tends to do is push you into the experience of the present moment, where you're really going to engage the present moment because you get that it's it's not lasting. Uh, one of the things that happens to us in that fork of the road between engagement on the one hand and uh, nihilism on the other is we somehow can imagine that we can preserve ourselves from having to suffer the loss of things by not allowing us to have them in the first place. If I haven't had it, then it won't matter if I lose it. And so we begin to restrict our, our willingness and to engage. But that's a poor understanding. We're going to lose it anyway. It doesn't matter whether you engage it or you don't engage it. You still get to lose it. But what you don't get by not engaging is the experience of having had it, of, of the meaningfulness that comes from that. And so the shift then into, I think, seeing that uh, clearly would be that you want to go all in knowing that you're going to lose it rather than only willing to go in when you hold the illusion that you're not going to lose it. So uh, the suffering, of course, is in losing it, but uh, only if you don't want to lose it or you think that there's a way not to lose it. If you go in with the idea that it, it eventually will be lost. Um, there's a famous story of Ajahn Chah, uh, I think, uh, who had a beautiful drinking cup and one day it fell and broke. Um, and uh, they were expecting him to be distressed by it. And his response was, it, it, it was already broken. That in each day using the cup, he understood it at a certain point that the cup would be broken. But I, I would have liked him also to say, and I really liked the cup. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to go for things and to get them and to have them and to enjoy them and then to lose them. In fact, that's, that is the whole picture, not some other piece of it. And uh, preserving the, yourself from the loss of things by not going after them doesn't keep you from not having them eventually. Just you never have them in the first place. I don't think material things are particularly 
interesting in that way. So it's not what I really mean, but um, for me, the experience of something or the relationship to someone is actually the thing that, that matters the most and to, to really go for these things, even though uh, um, they're not, not to be kept. Is that making sense? Um, <laughs> I was at a friend's house and she said uh, uh, something along the lines of, uh, I just don't want to suffer anymore. And so I said, well, you know, the first noble truth is life is suffering. She said, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> There's just no way out of it, really. Have you noticed anyone here that you're not aging? <clears throat> so that one's out. Never, anybody here never had a cold? <clears throat> so that one's out. Anybody here not know anyone who ever died? It's another one of those Buddhist stories. A woman, uh, a woh's uh, baby died, and she went from spiritual teacher to spiritual teacher, saying, "Please make please bring my baby back to life." And when she came to the Buddha, the Buddha said that I, I would be happy to bring your baby back to life. Uh, and in exchange for that, I just need one mustard seed from a family who's never had a death. Uh, and so she searched the countryside. And in every household that she went to, uh, everyone described the death experiences that they'd had. And so she came to understand that that was a natural process of this. So that's the, the dukkha aspect. So sitting into that, sitting in the contemplation of, of dying is one way to do it. The contemplation of... <clears throat> Imagining getting the thing that you want and then imagine uh, losing it. Imagine how you would enjoy the experience of having it and then at the same time relinquish it when you lose it. And then what about that subtle irritation? Do you know what I'm talking about? That irritation and nothing being quite exactly right. Christians. <clears throat> I'm curious, like if you have if you have a cold, do you frame that as some kind of special opportunity to meditate? Or do you just try to get through it? Or like what is the what is the way of relating to that as the Buddha would or something? I think I'm totally fine with this whole dying thing. I really get it. And then I get a cold and I'm terrified that I'm going to die. So <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I, I, I don't frame anything like a special opportunity to practice. I think you should be practicing all of the time. You don't need a special opportunity to practice because you're just practicing the whole time, um, constantly pulling it into the present moment. 
noticing each time you pull out of the present moment so that you can come back into the present moment. Lucy, stop the commentary. Come over here. We've decoded Lucy. <clears throat> she barks at nothing, but what it means is that she needs to be picked up immediately. <laughs> yes. Your dog has secure attachment. <laughs> this dog is probably fearful avoidant if we were talking about attachment. But she's in a good place for fearful avoidance. Uh, so uh, usually I talk about suffering third, but we did we talked about it first. Um, the subtle irritation, I, I find it comical that that uh, that nothing is actually right ever. But so you can slide into that perspective uh, of not needing it to be different than it is, and at the same time understanding how your conditioning is reflected in in the the idea that it isn't the way you want it. Um, why isn't the moment the moment as it unfolds perfect? Uh, and then you're pointed to the, the 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 nature of your own conditioning and the way that you create the experience of self and world in each moment based on that, right? Um, <clears throat> you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when there's contact. The consciousness of a sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for processing speed and the urgent stuff hits the perceptual database. And then if there's a close enough match in the perceptual database, the meaning of that kind of sensing experience unfolds and is projected out as conceptual reality. But where do we learn these kinds of things? What comes to mind is uh, my uh, grandmother on my father's side, uh, Grandma Haas said she was at a wedding and in the, in, in the 60s, uh, it was very common at a big wedding um, to unfurl a red carpet in front of the bride and the groom as they were walking out. So this is, in, in the 60s, it was quite common to have 12 groomsmen and 12 bridesmaids and have these big uh, weddings, which I don't, I haven't seen so much of anymore. Uh, and then after the bride are married, you know, they walk out down the aisle together as Mr. and Mrs. for the first time, and they were unrolling this red carpet as they were rolling out. And then they got to the end of the carpet and it was like six feet from the door. And so one of the carpet guys looked at my grandmother who was sitting there and said, huh, short changed again. So those, those kinds of conditionings build up and create these perceptions of how things should be, um, which is a kind of uh, entrapment in the, in the conditioning, which you can begin to notice and see the, the confines that you create for yourself in each moment, rather than actually be willing to inhabit the experience as it's unfolding, as it's happening. Is that making sense? We could all also talk about this in terms of a relationship to karma. Um, I've had this discussion quite a bit with Dan. Uh, if you uh, undertake to live an ethical life uh, and you are pretty good about making ethical choices in the things that you do, 
then what you can expect is the thing that is happening to be a representation of good karma. What happens when the representation of the experience of the present moment isn't what you want, and yet uh, you're living an ethical life, and so the experience that's arising in the present moment uh, is considered good karma? How do you adjust to that? That's an interesting place, I think, to work with this. Then, how, then can you reframe it as, if this is the good karma, then this is what I want, and I should then engage in it the way that it is. We're reflecting back to see whether or not you are, in fact, living an ethical life so that the expectation is appropriate for what's happening. But I can give you uh, uh, an idea of that. We we're going to open a meditation center, and we found a building, and we... we um, figured out uh, what the building would need we'd we'd fundraised everything was in place and then at the last minute it fell apart which was quite painful and not at all what i wanted but two months later COVID happened and if you look at it from that perspective had we opened we would have gone under because we would have had to close the center so actually the center not happening was the good karma, even though it was very painful and not what I wanted at the time. So uh, the reflection then is always, this is what's actually happening. Um, and if you live an ethical life and you tend to make ethical choices, the expectation is that this is the uh, the good karma, then the, the idea is to then begin to understand in what way that might be the case, um, which is an interesting thing. And then really noticing where you re you're resistant uh, in terms of what's actually happening. In each moment unfolds all of the possibilities that you could choose from the full range in an unrestricted way unfolds in front of you you could pick anything and then your conditioning confines what you can recognize as valuable to choose and so you can easily get into these samsaric ruts where you're choosing over and over again the things that are conditioned for you to value and not seeing the full range of possibilities in front of you or what else is valuable because your conditioning is overriding the ability to be in the experience of the present moment in a way that isn't biased by uh, that earlier conditioning. Is that making sense? Um, <clears throat> so that that's really this inhabiting of the present moment and uh, engaging in, in an ethical life and and then seeing what's happening and trying to make sense of what's actually happening rather than getting swept up over and over again and not wanting what's happening because you had an idea of what it should be instead. And then you find you're being taken in places that are beyond your experience because uh, you haven't limited your uh, choices to things that you can imagine. Is that making sense? So then you have to uh, open 
So in some sense, there's a, a faith aspect in ter- the Buddhist sense of faith, not believing in a in a deity, but, but believing in the experience and what's actually happening in the present moment. And then being willing to uh, risk. In attachment terms, we would call this exploration. You're willing to explore something, explore something new uh, in the pursuit of things that are meaningful to you. But in, in order to do that, you have to be willing to risk uh, new experiences and uh, and the fearfulness or the dis- emotional dysregulation that can come from that. And that's why you want to be able to put around yourself uh, a secure base of people that you can rush back to totally discombobulated who will catch you and help you re-regulate and stand you back up and then push you back out to explore some more. Um, because without that, really, the, the, the risk often is too great and we can't t- take it. So in the moment, instead of taking the thing that opens and would be in, um, a, a source of great meaning, if we could get ourselves to do it, we ins- pick the habituated thing that is less uh, frightening, less dysregulating, less risky. Even if in, that, in making that choice, uh, we don't find the meaning that we need and we come into a place of despair because we're not finding the meaning that we need. Is that making sense? It's, it's, it's in each, each of these moments of being able to choose. Can we take the risk because we know that we have a safety net of people who will catch us if we need that? Or do we have to always be with, you know, taking the risk with no net uh, and just in some sense not being willing to do it over and over again because it's so hard to come back into balance if you don't have people that will help you? Is that all making sense in terms of that? You know, the, the Japanese have a saying, a nine times, so, sorry, uh, seven times down, eight times up, or is it eight times down, nine times up, one of those? Um, so that they're always uh, conditioning their children to understand that you have to try, and most of the time, it doesn't work seven times down, eight times up, then you get up after that and keep exploring. And uh, that it's a kind of resilience that comes from that. Uh, I always talk about the apple story. I, maybe you've all heard it, maybe not. But um, when I first got sober in 1978, I was um, talking to somebody uh, and they said, now that you're sober, what do you want to do? And I said, I have no idea what I want to do. And he said, well, uh, and, I, and I said, and I have no way of finding out. <laughs> Helplessness was one of my strategies. <laughs> and he said, well, what kind of apples do you like? And I said, oh, I don't like apples. They're hard. They're sour. They hurt my gums. And he said, well, that sounds like a Granny Smith, but there are a lot of other kinds of apples out there. I said, well, actually, the only apples we ever got were those. So um, he said, well, go to the Korean deli, buy a Granny Smith and buy one of their apples, eat them both. And then the next day, go back and buy the apple that you liked better. 
and do that every day until you've tried all of the apples in the Korean deli. And at the time, there were like 26 varieties of apples. So it took almost a month of going to the deli. And at the end, I like gala apples. And pink ladies were a close second. And Granny Smiths were dead last. <laughs> But what you understand about that is you find out what it is actually that that is workable for you. Uh, but 25 times I found out what wasn't workable. And that that's the that's the process. That's the understanding of what exploration is and how you find meaning in things. And that resilience that you need to have in order to be able to do that. And that resilience comes because you have this, this secure base to explore from, which are these relationships that support you. Um. <laughs> Turning on my chat. Yeah, Red Delicious is, we had one, once a year, we got the Harry and David fruit box. Did, did, you, did you ever have that? <clears throat> There's a, uh, my dad was a, a doctor, and so we would get presents from his patients sometimes. And one of the things that we would get was Harry and David's uh, monthly fruit box. And so once a month, they'd send you a, a dozen pieces of fruit, but it was like an apple that was a giant, giant apple. And when you bit into it, it was kind of grainy and, and not very sweet. Um, so... So let's talk about self, no self, or self and not self, or the perception of self. It, it isn't actually uh, that there isn't a, an organizing activity called self, uh, and it isn't that it isn't even, even that it isn't useful. It is useful to be able to organize around uh, a self-identity, uh, it is uh, useful to uh, develop skills that can be associated with self-identities. Uh, and that isn't actually what we're talking about when we say there is no solid, continuous, ongoing, permanent sense of self that is locatable. What we're saying is that the sensing experience of self and world are the same and that the self isn't separate from that and it isn't in a place of observing outside of itself, the sensing experience, that it is, in fact, the sensing experience that awareness is knowing, even though it creates the perception of duality, where there's a point of view looking out at something happening, and that it's separate from that, and that it's ongoing, and that it's permanent. <clears throat> um, so we would make a distinction between consciousness and awareness and that the the self experience arises in consciousness which awareness knows but they're not the same thing and that what happens mostly to people in the perception of self as an ongoing phenomena is that the self experience arises and passes and as it begins to pass because 
the, the experience can be frightening or painful, we jump and identify awareness as the self-experience. And then when the self-experience arises, we jump back into the self-experience from awareness and we lose that movement in and out of the self-experience and the misidentification with awareness and the self-experience. One of the things that happens in terms of practice, depending on what kind of practice you're doing, is that you tend to have the experiences or the insights that are related to the meditation technique that you're doing. Uh, and so when you're practicing in a Theravada style, it's really about deconstructing and shutting off the sense of self. So in the studies that uh, um, uh, Judd Brewer and Dan Brown did, around this comparing uh, Theravada, long-term Theravada meditators with long-term Tibetan meditators, uh, the experience in the brain was quite different. Uh, the Theravada meditators tend to shut down the ACC, which is the center that generates the perception of self. And so when you come into that kind of no self experience, it's that the, the activity of the brain that would generate the perception of self shuts down and so you come into a place that is without the sense of self. But you also come into a place that doesn't have that, that organizing principle to it. Christian? Could you guess at the feature of the Theravada meditation system that would shut that sense of self down as opposed to the to the tibetan system well the tibetan system moves into this big open awareness and so you shift your identification from the activities within awareness to the awareness itself and you hold that as a uh, as the object and then what you are able to do is watch in awareness objects arise and pass including the object of self-experience arising and passing but you're watching it from the place of awareness <clears throat> and you're shifting out of the ACC activity and the prefrontal cortex activity into the parietal lobe, which is more around the, the local global placing of attention. So you move out of the, sen the sense of self into the sense of uh, global awareness. Uh, and all of the things are happening, whereas in the Theravada practices, it tends to restrict uh, the activation of the part of the brain that creates the self-experience. And so you have a, a different kind of experience. In the no-self-experience in the Theravada tradition of practicing, it's an absence of that activity. And in the Tibetan one, uh, it's a shift out of identification so that the activity is still happening. Do you think it might come out of some kind of narrowness of focus in the Theravada or? Um, I think that the, the deconstructing noting type practice that pulls everything apart is what causes it. Whereas they don't do that in, in Tibetan practice. I'm assuming if you're coming to me that you're probably mostly Theravada practitioners because I'm I'm empowered to teach Theravada stuff, but not empowered to teach Tibetan stuff. So I don't really teach the Tibetan stuff. It's not 
I'm expressly forbidden from doing it in Dan's tradition, so I, so I don't. Um, that doesn't mean there, there isn't uh, that available. One of the things about um, uh, culture, cultural appropriation as a culture, which is what I think America is, <laughs> we just take everything and glom it together into one thing. Uh, so uh, having sat with Shinzen for all those years, uh, and him calling his what he's teaching Theravada, but when you dissect it, he pulls from all of the traditions and just mashes them together in a in a secularized a mindfulness practice. Um, just uh, I think very American in terms of this, but also understand that Buddhism came into different cultures and was transformed by the culture itself. So the the Theravada that started with the Buddha in India and move, migrated into Southeast Asia and, and into China. Uh, while it was preserved largely in Southeast Asia as Theravada, it became Chan in China. And then uh, when it migrated to Japan, became Zen. And then when it migrated to Tibet, it became Vajrayana. And the cultural elements that were necessary uh, were brought into it in each of those cultural conversions. And so in the, the current time, um, that process, of course, is unfolding in the West as we're creating a, 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 a Buddhism that's culturally relevant uh, and informed by the, the structures of our culture uh, and uh, it's shifting. Um, we also uh, understanding the, the, the development of all of this you could say that we are coming out of the, the postmodern era into a new era, which hasn't really been uh, um, defined completely yet, um, out of the modern era. So the modern era, which is technology and industry uh, are going to transform life and science is the new religion. Uh, and that we can really rely on science became the postmodern era, which was really one of extraordinary relativity, where nothing actually uh, had that that same uh, direction to it. Um, but that that sort of moral relativity that is such a hallmark of the postmodernists uh, isn't holding up as the earth is destroyed by that. Uh, that uh, equivalency that uh, um, uh, maybe it's an ordinary an or ne necessary process of uh, becoming disillusioned with certainty and then uh, the thing that reorganizes after that disillusionment. You following me on this? <clears throat> <laughs> How do we come into peace with this, right? And then also uh, organize our lives in such a way that we can pursue things that we find really meaningful and at the same time inhabit the, the, the time that we're in and, and the obligations that we have. I, one of the things that I find um, particularly plaguing about the postmodern view is that uh, it is that people withdraw from their responsibility uh, to the community that they live in because of that belief. 
And I think it's essential that we engage the community uh, and that we engage the world that we're living in uh, so that we can create a world that is actually uh, fair and and that uh, is um, providing for the people. It isn't that there aren't the resources to provide for people. It's the distribution of the resources that is the problem. And that's really oriented because of these beliefs in, in um, uh, you know, an abandonment of the community in favor of the, the, the pursuit of individual, uh, I don't know what, accumulation. Um, so, but then there's also this strong identification of self that comes with that, this rigidity around the belief of self and the, the, the collection of these things around the sense of self will uh, imbue it with some lasting value uh, which I think is not actually accurate. Do you have the sense that yourself is ongoing and constant and has been the same your entire life and is unchanging? How could you have that if you actually paid attention to it? Do you have the perspective that you had as a five-year-old? Can you even imagine what that perspective was like? Have you engaged in talking to a five-year-old recently and tried to remember when you had a mind that would create the experiences of the world and in the same way. I mean, once you hit puberty and the mind develops this capacity for adult reason, all of that uh, childlike uh, capacity is lost and, even, and can we even remember the perspective of it. So that when you have the memories that you have that you made when you were five years old, you no longer have the gear to play the memory in a way that's even remotely accurate to the way that the memory was made. You don't live in the same body. You don't think in the same way. You don't value the, the meanings in the same way. And so you play the memory uh, and it, it is then uh, interpreted through the current capacities that you have. And then it's remembered, and it's the original memory plus every time you remember it is remembered. And so each time you draw one of the old memories up, uh, it is different than it was. There's a way to go back uh, to have a pristine look at what those experiences were, what happened uh, when that happened. Is that all making sense? And so we really want to have this perspective, uh, I think, of understanding that the self-experience comes and goes and it's a it's a marvelous organizing principle that we can use to be effective in our lives but as soon as we don't need it anymore it passes away and then as the conditions change in the next moment the sense of self that arises is based on the current conditions not based on the past conditions and that it lasts as long as those conditions and when those conditions ends it goes and then the next set of conditions creates the next experience of self and can we see how the self arises distinctly in that way another way to do it is how do you experience the sense of self when you're alone and then how do you experience your sense of self when you're with one other person and does that change is the experience of yourself different when you're with a stranger is the experience of self different with when you're when you're you don't feel safe is the experience of self different when you're with somebody who you really trust and 
and you can see delights in you and, and takes care of you? Uh, and can you see distinctly that because the conditions are different, the experience of self that arises to meet those conditions is different? What's it like to be in a small group and how different is that than one-on-one -on -one or being alone? What's it like to be in a large group and how different is that from the experience of the small group or the, or the couple or, or uh, when you're on your own? And really track that so you begin to notice that the sense of self is constantly arising and passing and constantly arising and passing based on the conditions in the moment. And as the conditions change, so does the sense of uh, self or the responsiveness of the sense of self change, all based on your uh, perceptual database and your capacity to imagine. Imagination is important because it fills in the blanks when you, when you don't actually have previous experience that matches the conditions. If you get really reticent about that, uh, then you begin to restrict yourself over and over again to things only to engaging in things that you've already experienced so that you don't have to have the discomfort of not knowing what to do in a situation. Um, that's a kind of rigidity of sense of self or the belief that you need to protect the sense of self, you need to defend the sense of self, or you need to, or that, 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 uh, Yourself, that selfing activity can somehow be damaged by uh, not uh, functioning uh, precisely in the moment the way that you think you need to, to keep the representation. Is that all making sense? Somewhat. The self thing is a little bit harder, but just pay attention to that. Do you feel consistently the same? Do you notice that you feel different based on the conditions? And then the last one is the impermanence thing. The idea is, uh, can you think of anything that's lasted? Who has tinnitus? <laughs> it's always the, the one that people point to <laughs> as being permanent. <laughs> Can you think of a time before tinnitus? Uh, do you always have an awareness of it, or does that even come and go as your attention to it comes and goes? Does the irritation about having it change? Does that come and go? Uh, everything is impermanent. Nothing lasts. Nothing can be counted on to last. Um, I'm of a nature to uh, to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent going growing old. I'm of a nature to become ill. There's nothing I can do to prevent uh, becoming ill. I'm of a nature to die. Uh, there's nothing I can do to prevent dying. Everything I have and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There's nothing I can do to prevent losing them. My only true possession is my uh, uh, intentions and actions. Uh, there's no way that I can uh, escape the consequences of my intentions and actions, the five remembrances around impermanence. Uh, 
unsatisfactoriness or reactivity and also the sense of self. So we begin to touch into these topics and the third stage on the progress of insight. Um, we raise them mainly as concepts to be explored and then we begin a process of exploring them. The main uh, one that's explored initially is impermanence. Um, so in the third stage, really, the idea is uh, to begin to notice the impermanent nature of, of everything as the vehicle to seeing that the sense of self arises and passes and is impermanent. All phenomena arises and passes and is impermanent. Uh, and in the in the dukkha aspect, there's the the, the macro uh, piece. Uh, all of you were born and you were infants. What happened to your infant self? All of you were children. What happened to your child self? All of you were uh, adolescents. What happened to your adolescent self? Not just talking about behavior. <laughs> <laughs> um, where did it go so we see in that macro sense the impermanence of it right the impermanence of your infant self your child self your adolescent self your youthful self maybe um, and i can say in my case my adult self and my old age even that's going uh, what will be left old, old age, hopefully. Um, so uh, in the meditation that we're going to do, we're going to do a basic see, hear, feel technique, but we're going to modify it in a way. Rather than simply allow our attention to move off of each object as our attention uh, flags, we're going to stay with each sensing experience until it drops off abruptly or ends. We're going to note gone and then move to the next uh, sensing experience. So in the see here field technique, does everybody know the see here field technique? If you don't, it's fine. I just, I can drop out some instructions if everybody knows. Okay, I'll give them. Um, we're dividing the world, uh, the sensing domain, into three broad categories, visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body. We're noting, so knowing where your attention is, soaking into the sensing experience of that. And so what we're trying to do in soaking into the sensing experience is know the difference between this is what we've made it into and this is what actually the data is. So in, in, in the felt sense of the body, you touch into the sensations of the body and know that that's something like uh, respiration or temperature, whatever you make it into, and visual experience, uh, the sensing experience of the visual experience and the imagery that you've made it into. In external sound space, for instance, you hear the sound of a car driving by, you know that's a car, but then what is the sound of the car like? Uh, without relying just on knowing what it is, but really touching it and listening to it. Um, but we're going to hang out with each sensing experience and not just let uh, our mind move uh, for the first part of the meditation. 
and just stay with it continuously until it either drops off or uh, disappears. And then in the second half, we'll add mind to it as one of the things that can be impermanent. What you'll notice is that uh, sometimes uh, if it's say this, the fan noise of a computer, which is pretty constant, you're interested in it lags and then the mind moves somewhere else. And in that way, it's also impermanent in that in the sense that mind is impermanent. Is that making sense? And then we'll do a couple of minutes of um, just breath counting so that we can settle in. Okay, go ahead and so any comments or questions about that? Did you find something permanent? Was the self lasting? <laughs> there was a train that went by and there's no train tracks near me. So oh. it's really far away. And that was neat. And then as soon as the train left, the sirens came. And then my computer monitor. My, my I always do here and then followed by a quick C because I... Mm -hmm overpowers the here quickly. Mm -hmm. I've still not been able to just stay with it here ever. <laughs> All the way through? It almost always just does, uh, I'll hear something and then the visual comes up right after. When you used to sit it against the stream, there was so much traffic on the street that actually you, there was like a bass white noise and then individual cars would rise and fall or individual motorcycles would rise and fall out of the bass sound. Um, uh, but your attention would move and so you'd lose track of the bass sound. So uh, it's an interesting investigation how you actually put, put all of this together and have the experience that you have. Did you find a self that was uh, choosing which to focus on? Or when you let that go, did it just be drawn to whatever, whatever it was that drew your attention? Did you notice that sometimes the attention flows from one object to another? Sometimes multiple objects come up in the background and the mind tentatively chooses one and then flows in. Do you notice that sometimes it abruptly shifts? depending on what the uh, input is. Who's doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Expressly forbid yourself from doing it and then see whether that stops it from happening. Next time we'll talk about the fourth stage, which is uh, impermanence or flow. And this is really an examination of the difference between the conceptual reality, which is fixated and the, the pure sensing experience, which is flowing and shifting out of the identification with the solid into the energy of it. Um, and then uh, noticing how that, uh, if you don't fixate anything, nothing is solid. So it pushes up against the habit of fixating everything. Um, we tend to hold on to it, which increases the 
the, the suffering of the loss of the experience. Whereas if we could get to a place where we we're completely free to allow things to arise and fixate and then pass, there would be very little suffering there. So another way to put that is to shift out of the identification with a sense of self and the sense of conceptual reality and shift into identification with the with awareness itself. Then you watch from awareness everything arise and pass, but there's no suffering there. And it becomes quite acute the difference between being in awareness and not suffering and being trapped in the consciousness of, ex of experience, like a little pressure cooker of suffering. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that next time. Saturday, there's the second day long in, the, in a new level one series. So if you're interested in the attachment stuff, we'll be doing day two. If you haven't already registered, uh, when you do register, you'll get the links for the, the first day uh, in, if you want to catch up. Uh, the following Sunday, I'm also doing uh, a level one. So we had a lot of requests for, from people to do it on sun, Sunday instead of Saturday. And so we're doing both a cycle on Saturday and a cycle on Sunday. Um, April 11th, we have a new level two starting. If you're interested in a level two, we're going to do a virtual retreat also in April from the 10th to the 16th. Uh, I think that's right, seven days. It should be up on the website. And we are going to do an in-person retreat in the fall from October 1st to October 8th. The, in-person retreats are quite small, so if you're interested in doing an in-person retreat, it's, uh, I would even register now because uh, we've already had uh, one registration. It's only been up for a minute. Uh, and it, uh, in the, the one that we did in December, it, it sold out three months ahead of time. So um, I think that's all that's happening. But we're gonna, oh, we're gonna do an I love you, keep going. We've changed the name of the, Meditation and attachment for couples to, I love you, keep going. <laughs> and so we're going to do one of those relational um, uh, day long. So it, really it's talking about uh, the um, skill set of secure functioning relationships and how to negotiate those. Uh, you can come with a partner if you want to, and then you'll spend the day working with your partner, or you can come singly and we'll just uh, associate it with another single person during the course of the, the day long. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Uh, Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll consider making a donation to support me and the work that Metagroup is doing. Any amount is appreciated, and you can find a link for that on the website. Um, uh, everybody all right? Hey, George. Yeah. Thanks for introducing us to your pet skunk. <laughs> Lucy, do you hear that? <laughs> Did you, you see Lucy? Say goodbye. <laughs> All right. Bye, George. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> Bye.